Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable, his honor, her honor, your honor, do you want to pursue it? Happy May Day, and welcome to the May 1st, 2017 edition of Just In Case. This is the podcast of criminal law cases just in from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after April 17, 2017, starting with the United States Supreme Court. Manrique v. United States is a case about federal notices of appeal from restitution orders. Sounds exciting, right? In Manrique, the district court issued a judgment sentencing Mr. Manrique for child pornography in June of 2014, but the court delayed making a restitution finding until nearly three months later in September of 2014. Mr. Manrique filed a timely notice of appeal from his original judgment in June, and on appeal he argued, among other things, that the district court's September restitution order was unsupported. The government objected that Mr. Manrique had forfeited any complaint about the restitution order because he didn't file a second notice of appeal after the restitution order was issued. The Eleventh Circuit sided with the government, and last month the Supreme Court affirmed. Mr. Manrique's first and only notice of appeal did not spring forward to embrace that later restitution order. And so the lesson for federal defense lawyers out there is this. File your timely notice of appeal from the original judgment, but be sure to file a second notice of appeal from any restitution order that is later issued. Because restitution can be a really big deal. When Mr. Manrique gets out of prison, he's now going to have a $4,500 restitution order hanging over his head. And this kind of debt can really sink a person, especially somebody trying to start over after a prison term. And by the way, Mr. Manrique was given a life term of supervised release, and so if he doesn't make those restitution payments, he's looking at revocation and more prison time. And so while restitution notices of appeal may not sound very exciting, they can be pretty important to the people under those restitution orders. Okay, that's it this week from the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's see what's going on at the Tenth Circuit. Well, the Tenth Circuit hasn't published any decisions in direct criminal appeal since last episode, so let's look a little deeper and talk about a couple of unpublished decisions. In United States versus Nicholas, the Tenth Circuit held that Kansas robbery is not a violent felony for purposes of the Armed Career Criminal Act. Why is that? Because in Kansas, you can commit a robbery using only de minimis force. Purse snatching, for instance, is a robbery in Kansas. But a violent felony that triggers the ACCA's enhancements has to include an element of violent force. And purse snatching just doesn't meet that level of force, and so Kansas robbery is out as an ACCA predicate. United States versus Sosa is a Fourth Amendment case. Two police officers were in a neighborhood investigating a break-in that had just been committed by, according to witnesses, a Spanish man wearing a gray shirt and a baseball cap. Mr. Souza is a Hispanic man 
who was standing on his porch in the neighborhood and wearing a gray sweatshirt and a baseball hat. The police officers saw him. They approached, they pulled their guns, and without asking any questions at all, told Mr. Souza to put his hands on his head. He calmly complied. Again, without asking him any questions, the officers jumped up on the porch and started to handcuff Mr. Souza. During that process, they noticed broken glass on his sweatshirt. Mr. Souza made incriminating statements, and when the officers patted him down, they found a knife and a loaded gun on his person. This evidence should have been suppressed, says the Tenth Circuit in United States versus Souza. These officers were too impulsive, says the court. Mr. Souza's generic resemblance to the burglar was not probable cause to arrest him, and his calm and submissive demeanor dispelled any need for the level of force they used when they immediately handcuffed him. And that's the news from Denver. But before we move on to our state cases, I do want to point out another Fourth Amendment ruling, this one from a federal district court in the Eastern District of Louisiana. Remember United States versus Jones. That was the GPS case from the U.S. Supreme Court a few years ago. There, the Supreme Court held that when officers secretly attached a GPS tracker to Mr. Jones's car, they committed a trespass that was a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. Last month, in a case called Schmidt v. Stasi, a federal judge applied Jones to hold that a police officer's secret swabbing of a car door handle for DNA was a trespass on the car that, too, was a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. The case was reported by Oren Kerr at the Volokh Conspiracy, which is a blog I highly recommend for hot-off-the-press criminal law news and that you can go to for links to the ruling and more information about Schmidt versus Stasi. And with that, let us ride that prairie schooner on over to the Kansas appellate courts. In State versus Williams, the Kansas Supreme Court held that the statements of an informant during an undercover controlled by were testimonial, and their admission against the defendant at trial, when the informant did not appear to testify, violated Mr. Williams's Sixth Amendment right to confront the informant. The court reviews its previous Sixth Amendment cases and holds that when deciding whether a statement is testimonial, the inquiry should generally seek to identify statements that are by nature substituting for trial testimony and the informant's statements fit that description here. As the Supreme Court put it, the planned drug buy here lacked the trappings of a formal police interrogation, but it nevertheless followed a law enforcement script in a setting and with actors and props and costumes it supplied, controlled, and mined, as always intended, for damning evidence against the drug dealer. And so we now have a much clearer picture as what counts as testimonial in Kansas courts. Unfortunately for Mr. Williams, the court also held that the erroneous admission of these statements against him was harmless. In State v. Chapman, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Chapman's murder conviction, reminding us once again that it is probably impossible to win a change of venue claim on appeal without a venue study to support the argument. It may be impossible to win a change of venue claim on appeal no matter what, but check out Chapman if you want to know what you ought to do in the district court if you want to have any chance on the issue there. 
State versus Stewart is another murder case. Here, the Kansas Supreme Court clarifies again that when the defendant is charged with both premeditated and felony murder, the jury must consider both of those alternative kinds of first-degree murder simultaneously, and the jury may only proceed to consider any lesser kinds of murder if and when it rejects convictions on both premeditated and felony murder. Also in Stewart, the Kansas Supreme Court rejected Mr. Stewart's claim that the district court should have found him incompetent to stand trial and rejected his claim that the trial judge should have revisited the pretrial judge's ruling admitting the state's expert's blood spatter testimony. In State v. Carter, the Kansas Court of Appeals holds that domestic battery is not a lesser-included offense of aggravated battery. In State v. Nyehaus, N-I-E-H-A-U-S, the Kansas Court of Appeals opined that when district courts impose that $200 DNA database registration fee at sentencing, they are not required to sua sponte consider the defendant's ability to pay. There's nothing in the statute that says they have to do that. Now, district courts may waive that fee for indigent defendants, but it's up to the defendant to request that act of grace. All of this is dicta, by the way, because the court found that in Niehaus, the sentencing judge actually did consider Ms. Niehaus's ability to pay, but now we know the court's view on the issue. Last from the Kansas Court of Appeals, we have a couple of criminal history cases. First, in State v. Fanert, that's F-A-H-N-E-R-T, the Court of Appeals held that a 2007 Missouri burglary conviction was misclassified as a person felony in violation of Apprendi, DeCamps, and Dickey. In so holding, the panel disagreed with another panel in an unpublished Court of Appeals case called Sauders. The defendant in Sauders has petitioned for review, as I imagine the state may do in Fanart, so this might not be the last we hear about Missouri burglary. Finally, State v. McAllister is yet another Dickey case involving the classification of old Kansas burglary convictions. Here, the Kansas Court of Appeals holds that the Kansas Supreme Court meant what it said in Dickey 2 when it said that an illegal sentence can be corrected at any time, even when the defendant was sentenced as long ago as 1996, and the misclassification of prior convictions makes a sentence illegal. So take a look at McAllister if you've got an old case with a potential misclassification issue. And that is all she wrote for this episode of Just In Case. If you want to holler back at me, you can do that by email at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Res judicata, give me pizza cutter. Just In Case.